Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Evan Stone. Evan is based in Los Angeles and has played the role of drummer, producer, and band leader. He currently fronts an original avant-garde project called the Translucent Ham Sandwich Band. The band released their debut album in 2016 entitled Music from the Future. His travels have brought him around the world to perform his music as well as having played the traditional role of sideman, performing, and or recording with some well-known artists such as trumpet player Greg Adams from Tower Power, Manard Ferguson, Tony Childs, Robbie Krieger of The Doors, and Danny Seraphine from the band Chicago, just to name a few. If you like what we're doing here at Working Drummer Podcast and you want to help sustain this ongoing project that Mike and Zach and I have been doing for over two and a half years, there's a way that you can help, and there are many progressive rewards for those of you who can help. I'm talking about free Skype lessons from pro drummers like Ben Caesar and Carter McLean, a free Working Drummer t-shirt, access to bonus content, shout-outs, Twitter follows, and even a personal feature on you within an episode. Check out all the details at patreon.com slash workingdrummer. Donations start out at a dollar per month. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that. And then the uh, batter side is going to be a little bit sharper. Just so you get that nice snap out of the kick, but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone. You can also find a link to the new Sublime Birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer. In the near future, we've got much more to share in regard to Crush Drums and this dynamic company. For now, check out Crush Drums at crushdrum.com. So let's get to this. Here is Evan Stone. We should begin with uh, recognizing the historical significance of this date, 9-11 today. And, and, uh, and, and never forget, because part of never forgetting is to always remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, yeah, we're coming upon... Uh, years? 16 years. I think of it as 15 because that's the day I found out that my wife was pregnant with my 15-year-old. Oh, wow. So it was a, it was a, a very confusing day. Oh, I'm sure it was. That's that's crazy. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, wow. That's that's a that's a bit of a bittersweet thing going on there. I'm from New York, so it was it was terrifying actually. Were you there? No, I wasn't. I was living here, but um, 
but the Twin Towers were my, that was my Mecca. That was the place that I went to um, whenever I visited New York City. It was the first place I would walk to right out of Penn Station and, and just visit and just hang out there and go sometimes go to the top sometimes just hang out near the building go go down towards Greenwich Village but they had a, a they were they were a very it was very powerful I mean those those were <clears throat> those were powerful buildings and I can I understand why um, they were targets I imagine I mean you know not, not only being in the financial district but just you know just whatever they represented but it's interesting to me you know just you know, thinking about music and what we're what we may talk about today, but how when I was thinking about nine eleven today and how it impacted um, America, I think it may have impacted Americans in ways that they and, and artists. I mean, we're talking about musicians and, mm-hmm. and that, but I think it I think it, it affected almost every American in, in a way that they're not even aware of because because since that time. I thought about what's changed musically, you know, what, yeah. what's changed, what's changed with drums, but what's changed, you know, musically and artistically. And I thought, you know, that was an end of an age of sort of an innocence. I mean, as Americans, you know, it's still a fairly, you know, young country and we're still the, the new kid on the block mm-hmm. for all intents. But, um, I think that day in particular may have robbed us of our, our uh, uh, Americans of their, of, of their innocence, in a sense. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you take a child and, and you look at their drawings, and and, and a, a child being an innocent child, and, and and if it's you know if they're drawing uh, sunsets and unicorns or things like that, and mm-hmm. then you teach them about the world and death and destruction and the horrors and things like that, I imagine their paintings and drawings are going to change significantly. Yeah, yeah. And so and so, what we had with music and 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 art. At that point, that was a turning point because then music started to enter into an angry period. Hmm. Lyrics started to get more angry. Mm-hmm. Maybe drum became more aggressive. Music became more aggressive in general. I mean, it, it's had it's had a bigger impact than just an attack by terrorists or whatever. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist, so I don't necessarily believe the official stories, but but. Regardless, mm-hmm. it, it had a, an impact and far-reaching impact in ways that we can't, or most people don't even really consider or think about. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I I believe it, and it it it, it was amazing how it affected the psyche of of everyone. And now you have this. What's interesting is to watch my son grow up and be part of the generation that this is part of history. It that's accepted. It wasn't like a left turn, and yet, as you know, you're you're drawing the parallels between uh, a, a child growing and and embrace or coming upon reality and learning how to deal with it, much the way a young country is growing and has has uh, certain realities thrust upon it, uh, how it changes. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges as a parent is is that um, you want to protect them, but you also want to prepare them for realities, getting heartbroken, uh, uh, dealing with the realities of the world itself. Um, and so it, you have to do it in small doses and sometimes, real, you know, say a grandparent dies or something like that, all of a sudden the idea of death is thrust upon them and, and that 
you know, it's like it's hard to prepare anyone for something like that for the first time in their life. And I think that's that's what happened with us again. Um, like you say, you know, that that end of the innocence. Um, but you, but can you? Um, can you cite any examples of uh, of that? Look at look at look at um, look at rap music. Look at uh, rock music, or look at more more aggressive, uh, you know, death metals that came about. I mean, maybe it was happening before then, but I think it definitely was. Uh, I think it, it expanded upon that. Uh, you know, the mm-hmm. the aggressive and the maybe the anger or the angst. Yeah. Or not, but but I mean, you know, there was definitely more bands that were coming out with angrier type music and 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 uh, you know, angrier sounds on the more aggressive sounds, mm-hmm. lyric things. I mean, you know, think about a time in the '60s or '70s, which was really not that long ago, when yeah. you know, "I Want to Hold Your Hand" was considered you know taboo because it was like, "Ooh, I want to hold your hand." You know, they could they had to change the lyrics on the Ed Sullivan Show or mm-hmm. when the Rolling Stones when the Rolling Stones came on and, the, and uh, let's spend the night together, forget that. They were like, uh, you can't say that. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and today, that would be laughed at if, you said, if somebody said you can't sing those lyrics, you know? Right, but, and, and not, to, not to contradict you at all, these ideas, but, but I think that there are, different, there are different times in history where art reflects the uh, anger and confusion of the general public. I mean, yeah, you had um, the certain moral compass that has changed over the decades, but you also look at the effects of the Vietnam War on music, like, for example— Machine Gun, uh, Band of Gypsies, Jimi Hendrix. You know, you have something that is like very reflective of the time, and then you have this kind of uh, what I'm what I'm trying to get to is is this kind of like um, cyclical style of art and expression that happens over time, whether you see it in music or clothes or whatever. Yeah. And and that that six you hear that stuff uh, with you know with Hendrix CCR, uh, Pink Floyd, and then you get into the seventies, and then what becomes popular is disco and happy happy happy, and then you get the post punk revolution, and then you get um, you know there's music that I was listening to from the eighties that has this kind of very reflective of the Cold War anxiety, and the, and U two and stuff like that, and then and then the nineties had that. And then it got happy and happy, happy, and then nine eleven, boom. Right. Well, and then, and there's also something that we said. I mean, obviously, we're just t- touching on one aspect of yeah. it, but there there are there are musicians and artists that that kind of still, you know, look back and reflect on you know more peaceful times and write music that's you know not aggressive. And and mm-hmm. there's there's a nice balance. And it, it's also interesting to me that what you're to touch upon what you're saying is that a lot of times we're it seems that when there's periods of aggress- aggression or war, that artists will go the other way and, and purposely write, you know, peaceful tunes. Or maybe it's that um, government institutions, you know, use maybe uh, the medium of uh, radio or whatever uh, to um, to popularize certain songs at certain periods when things are happening socially that are. Uh, Let's say you know moving in a uh, uh, in a direction that uh, could be revolutionary or whatnot. I mean, you know, like for example, Happy. Uh, yeah. Was, yeah. You know, when that song came out, you know, what was happening? 
during, it'd be interesting to know, like, what was really happening in society when that song came out and was the song that you heard con- constantly, I mean, however many times a day you can <laughs> right. Vietnamese pho and listen to Happy coming on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, was that a time? I, I don't. I don't know the year, but it would be interesting to, to know. Like, was that during you know the peak of the occupation? You know, Occupy Wall Street was was that around that time? Yeah, or, yeah. Or there were tensions, and you know, in the streets, or people were like, you know, I don't know. It would be interesting to find out when that particular song came out because yeah. I, I do believe that you know that music being such a powerful instrument um it can affect people's moods and and uh subdue them you know or or bring them into uh uh a certain kind of uh, you know mentality in fact i was having this i did i did a uh, a discussion uh at uh san diego state university about music and politics and how they're related and mm-hmm. how they're used and and we talked about, for an example, how the military uses music uh, against their enemy. Like, it, I, I, from what I heard, you know, and this could just be a story, but from what I from what I heard from yeah. reliable sources, that the military was using um, like death metal songs and playing it over loudspeakers outside of of Saddam Hussein's compound twenty four hours a day just to keep them, <laughs> and you know what I mean? I mean that that's. That's a weapon. I mean, sure. If somebody was blasting that outside my door, I'd go insane within a few minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. No doubt. But, 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 but you know, just going back a little bit to to how you know music can affect a society. It's you know during times of of war, do artists tend to go the other way and and you know write peaceful music or music that will you know set you at ease versus you know going all the way there and going oh yeah, death and destruction because I mean you know. I think balance is important, and maybe that that's a real thing. But um, I think talking about since nine eleven and just and just society as a whole as we move forward, has music become you know has it remained innocent or has it remained? I mean, think about think about a classical period. Like, what classical you know uh, composer do we know? Maybe besides Wagner, that that wrote music that was angry or stirred the kind of emotion that kind of made you like who who were the uh uh and i'm not even rage against the machine but go go even further than that like some death metal i don't even know the names of them but you know mm-hmm. who who was that guy back then that wrote music that made you angry i don't i yeah. don't really know anything. you know and then you talk about music in the 50s like who what elvis came in and you know right what music was really doing that kind of a thing sound that was you know aggressive okay so maybe monk punk music came in and, and no, uh, maybe Thelonious Monk I mean there were there were times or maybe even maybe even the stuff that Miles was bringing in in the late 60s but I mean they, there again we're jumping into the next decade yeah and that music still even though you know we're talking about Thelonious Monk and and and, uh, and the way that he approached music in, in a this, no, I wouldn't even say it's disharmonious. I, I would just say it's because because I, I hear everybody hears things differently. I, I hear monk and I hear you know beautiful yeah dissonance uh, you know and some people may listen to it and hear and think wrong notes or whatnot. But, yeah, sure. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, that's an interesting one. I mean, you know, definitely um, or Ornette Coleman or right, like right. that. Oh yeah, well, I mean, even, but Ornette. But even when even reflecting upon Ornette for a second, I mean, like that, that was like a push against the norm within a subsect of 
uh, a subset of uh, a community, uh, an art community itself. I don't know if it was reflective upon a larger society, but he was trying to push against, um, you know, what was happening within his scene and, yeah. getting, and getting punched in the face for it. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's I it's it's a really interesting uh subject, man. I mean, and and it makes you wonder and I think that when you talk about classical music and and music and politics itself, I mean, I think the using this word loosely, the machine of of music business and the way it operates and the way the public consumes music, uh, commercially or otherwise, that can have a direct correlation with how music can af- is is related to politics and world issues because. I mean, again, what you're going to hear on the radio is going to be something different than what people are going to say. Like somebody is like, I'm I'm a huge Peter Gabriel fan, so that's not something I'm going to hear when I turn on the radio. The way you hear "Happy," right? <laughs> um, but what he is going to uh, uh, his subject material is going to get into a little bit heavier stuff, or like there's a a, a a punk band that I've been getting into uh, recently, and I can't remember their names right now. Name right now, but that addresses more of a of transgender issues. You know, that's not something you're going to hear on the radio. But that's the way people consume music in 2017, where in 1987, the way most of us consumed music was via radio, and then discovered something, and then went to buy the tape the record, and then eventually the CD. But man, now music is so accessible and saturated with with forms of getting to whatever it is you're interested in. Um, I wonder how directly effective music is for somebody that has, um, I hate to say agenda, but somebody that has the, the, uh, wants to influence the mood of the general public. I think it's probably more difficult nowadays. Just and 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 the genres have grown. You know, yes. I mean, they they've expanded. Um, I mean, I can't even keep track. I mean, remember, I remember a time when you know the categories were under a dozen. <laughs> it seemed like yeah, and, yeah, and now, yeah. but there's so many subcategories of things. You know, which is fine. I mean, you know, let's let's you know, music has to move forward and everything. But yeah, it it it, it is interesting because there's. There's such a mix now. It's it's hard to and and also I think if if we you know touch on the idea that the way that music impacts people is maybe a little bit different. I mean, I, you said saturated. I would say oversaturated. I think mm-hmm. that that music in general has been you know we're inundated with music in every aspect of our lives. We go to you know. Uh, I don't want to bounce too much around, but you know, you go to the elevator. You use an elevator. There's music. You go into a supermarket. There's music. You turn on the TV. There's music. I mean, everywhere there's like constantly music. So how does music really affect people? And especially in a, in an age where the single is more important than the experience of the artist's you know entire collection or album. You know, mm-hmm. like how many people? How many people? Uh, and, and, and like, how old is your your son? Uh, I've, he's fifteen, and, and his younger brother is twelve. Okay, so so do they experience music in in the way that maybe you have, or I have, where 
you, you get the album and you listen to it in its entirety and you it, and it's an experience or do they just hear singles and have a single from here a single from there a single from here and they bounce around they are an anomaly because their father's a musician uh, right. they find a record and and they listen to it and they listen to vinyl uh, well, that's good and they that's have great. they discover cassette tapes that I had they discover things and they listen from beginning to end unless their friend says hey or their girlfriend says hey listen to Coldplay and then they might listen to a couple singles but they are top to bottom uh, you know album but but again I don't think that's very reflective of how that's young just, people consume music I wouldn't think that's the norm either. no Can we transition to into uh, the translucent ham sa- hand hand sorry the translucent ham sandwich band? Sure, yeah. I'm, uh, As a form of I expression mean, and improvisation, and <laughs> I mean my, that music is is um, and and sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. I mean, in, it sometimes it's a. Uh, it's political in nature. Uh, it depends on you know what's happening. It depends on my mood for that evening or who I have with me. But for the most part, it's been tied to uh, the current events. You know, I'll write I'll write lyrics. It's an all improvisational group, right? So um, I'll write lyrics a couple of days before or whatever, and then that night I'll try to sing something, sing those lyrics or whatever to to whatever's happening musically. And it's usually about you know things that are happening in the world, and um, so uh, you know. I mean, I don't, I don't think that it's. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it other than you know, it's. <laughs> we're not making music that that I'm not going out of my way to, to write you know love songs and things like that. I I've embraced, I guess. I get my beliefs or whatever or my opinions into my music and I, I don't know if that's affected it negatively or positively I mean you know we're we're not exactly being played on the radio so um, but you know whatever it, 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 I just decided in my life that I'm not going to try to write things that aren't really important to me mm-hmm. you know and so what's important to me is what's important to me and so if if I choose to you know, play my music, which is also equally important to me. Yeah. And I have, and I have something to say, you know, rhythmically on the drums, and I also have something to say verbally. Um, I, I'm, I'm gonna just write whatever I'm feeling about, and that happens to be, you know, issues that are of the, of you know, worldly issues, I suppose. But mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I'll just write about some silly stuff and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, I try to bring. Humor as much humor as I can into the picture. I don't want. I mean, I'm not. We're not raging against the machine or anything like that, you know. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I, have you? I don't even know if you've heard any of the music or. or I have not. I have not. It, um, can you tell me a little bit about it, or tell everyone about that? Uh, well, uh, what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's 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 you like you say it's a it's a, a fully improvisatory band. Um, I mean, I, I use uh, I use it's not jazz, and and I don't even really want to put a, a name to it because I I feel like music. I mean, I know that we have to, I suppose, have labels, but maybe that's part of the problem. But 
you know, maybe music should just be, you know, you know, when you used to go to record stores and they'd have, you know, the jazz section, and the classical room, mm-hmm. and they would put all these things into different categories. And so if you, you know, if you went into the store and you were looking for a specific thing and you, you wanted to get, uh, you know, whatever album and you went to that, that, that rock section or the, the R&B section and you, and you got what you're after, then the mission accomplished. But sometimes people go into stores and they just kind of browse around or they just, you know, they're, they're just looking, they're not looking for anything in particular. So wouldn't it be cool if it was just categorized by alphabet and, you know, and, mm-hmm. and Miles, Miles Davis was also mixed in with, uh, with, um, Dido was the first E that, that I could think of. I don't know. <laughs> Or, or uh, you know, whatever you know. Yeah. And so, so basically, you could stumble upon miles and miles, and then Moby. Exactly. And then... <laughs> so basically, you could you could stumble upon something that you wouldn't normally, ha- not that you wouldn't have access to, but you, you you wouldn't normally gravitate to, you know, and then discover it. Maybe, maybe visually, you saw the album cover and was like, "Wow, this looks really cool." And then you're like, "Oh, it, what kind of music is it? I don't know. It doesn't really." to find anything maybe I'll check it out and if I hate it I can return it I suppose but um, you know maybe maybe jazz would be you know more popular or, or maybe just music I don't know I don't know I just feel like the category thing like I don't like to define my band music and say it is or it isn't this but I mean I, I use a lot of jazz musicians just because they're improvisers by nature and so yeah, yeah but I'm not playing I don't consider it to be jazz band you know mm-hmm. and i don't be a rock band or I, I when people ask me i put it under the avant-garde category so um because avant-garde means new thing so since we're improvising and we we don't rehearse we just get together and we and we perform uh you know for an hour or whatever and, and we just we go with the flow and it's just a, it's a flow thing it's a stream of consciousness we we're listening to each other we're trying to react uh, and and so directionally the music goes all over the place. I mean, it just depends on whatever we're feeling. If I hear somebody's riff that sounds, you know, more more you know aggressive or or you know hardcore rock or whatever in nature, we'll go we'll go there for a second. Or if I hear somebody playing, uh, uh, you know, something you know swingy or whatever, we'll we'll go over there. We're not really you know. We don't come out, you know, out of the gate and go, okay, we're going to do this tonight. We're going to play this kind of stuff. It's it's really just whatever happens, happens. And that's exciting because all these musicians are not just, they don't just listen to one type of music. They listen to everything. So yeah. every, everything is, uh, all kinds of music are 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 touched upon. And, and hopefully, you know, we get to, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of blues and funk and jazz. So... As a drummer, I guess that mm, whatever I play, you know, behind the drums is going to dictate the feeling of the music in some way and kind of, you know, pinpoint it or, or categorize it in a, oh, this, he's playing a funk beat or yeah. he's playing stuff that's swinging or he's doing a reggae one drop or he's doing you know, and, I, and I'll do those because those are, those are things that just come to me in the moment you know and and yet I'm 
I'm trying to think about moving forward, mo moving the music forward, moving beats forward. I mean, drummers today are definitely experimenting with, uh, you know, fusing certain styles together to to form, you know, new feelings. I mean, that I wouldn't, I don't even know what to call it, but there's this thing that's going on now where. It, that drummers are trying to sound like programmed machines that, that programmers that are doing, you know, drum programming on records don't that aren't drummers and don't necessarily, you know, uh, understand the, the, the feeling behind, you know, how to hit drums and, and the, the spatial aspect of that, you know, where it sounds a little disjointed or it sounds like it's pushed in this area or the snare drum is on top and the, you know, the, the rest of it's behind the beat or yeah. there's an interesting push and pull and a sound that's coming from that. And it, and it's not, it doesn't always work. Sometimes it works for me. Sometimes I listen to it and I'm like, that's pretty cool. And sometimes I listen to it and go, it just feels weird to me. You know, it's so funny that you say that because, uh, the, uh, the bass, this bass player I worked with this weekend was, he was asking me about that. He's like, what is this thing? He goes, I, he goes, I, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. He goes, I just I don't get it because I'm trying to figure out and this is a this is a musician who plays drums and guitar and everything but uh, with this particular group he plays bass so but he has an understanding of the drummer's role and he wants to try and find ways to lock in and there's that constant like where's the pocket where's the feel how does this line up how does it balance so when he hears this he's going I don't know what to make of it right you know yeah i imagine for a bass player it's it's a horrifying experience <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way of putting it maybe that's why he brought it up whereas a drummer i'm just going oh how is he doing that but as a bass player and 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 i we're going to get to to erskine here but and ironically we were playing in in erskine alberta canada this weekend um but peter erskine when he did a clinic here in nashville he was talk he was playing some groove and and just doing some really great inside stuff on the kit and then he goes now i want you to all stand up and act like you're holding an upright bass and just kind of keep time just play just walk with me you know uh, with your right hand just walk and uh so we're all kind of doing it and he, and he starts playing this really great feel just simple time he goes okay how'd that feel and we're like yeah it's great okay now i'm going to do the same thing play the same tempo and everything but i'm going to play a little bit more outside you know whatever and he did and and we're all just trying to walk with him and it was it was hard to keep time just and he's like, you see where I'm going with this? Like everything I played is in time, and it, and it's like it's cool from a drummer standpoint. But if you were the bass player or the piano player or the singer, how fucked up would this make you feel? If I was doing all this stuff that you know he can do, and you know is yeah. right for some situations, but for most of us, there has to be a foundation that provides something comfortable Absolutely. for. He's a. The, I mean. Peter's a—he's a genius, and and he—he was my teacher for many many years. Yes, and and uh, just he just has an understanding of that of of how how strong the cordial pulse is, and and how important that is, and how important it is to convey that cordial pulse and get people to feel 
good and get the people to, to, to lock in and make them, you know, make everything work and not have it be dissonant and not have it be uncomfortable. And, and uh, I mean, he, he, he is that guy. He's the guy that, that brings everything together and makes it make sense and makes it feel great. I mean, that's, he can do that just playing quarter notes on the ride cymbal. He right. can swing. Right. Yeah. And, and, and most drummers don't understand that. It's funny because you know you talk about the blues. I was talking about the blues and and, um, and and the feeling of of how the drums can um, pretty much dictate you know what's going on uh, stylistically or whatnot or just the feeling that that it gives you. And I this was a couple of years ago. I was flipping channels on the radio and I came across an Eric Clapton tune. And I don't know if he was, I don't know if it was like Eric Clapton and somebody else or Buddy Guy or whatever. I, I can't remember. I think I, I think I may have looked it up, but it was, I was listening to it and I listened to it for about 15 to 20 seconds and I had to turn it off hmm. because, because I realized that they had recorded this blues track to a click. Oh. It sounded metronomically perfect uh-huh. and it had no blues in it whatsoever. Hmm. And it was a lesson to me and, you know, because as drummers, you know, we're, we're, we want to develop a, a great inner clock and have a great time. And, you know, wow, my pocket's solid and I don't rush or I don't drag or whatnot, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. The truth is, if you played with perfect metronomic time mm-hmm. and certain music, it's going to sound terrible. Yeah. Well, you know? uh, let me, let me, because this is, this is, uh, I, I just want to bring you into a little bit of what's going on in Nashville for a second and kind of get your perspective on this. And we're talking about mostly pop country and pop music um, is that it's, here's what's normal. And when I moved here 17 years ago, it started to become more and more and more normal. And a lot of uh, different singers and artists that I work with, they're like, well, we have, if they don't, even if they don't have tracks, they're expecting you to play to a click live. Right. And 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 so it's like, can you play to a click and make it feel good? Blah blah blah. And we're talking about this is your role as a sideman, you know. Um, so, do you think this is just a bad now? And then and then the other aspect, if if you just give me your your thoughts on this, there's different apps and there's different tools to use that keep track of the tempo you're playing without dictating where you're at. So there's like a, an app called Live BPM that I use. Uh, actually quite often that just gives me a reference of kind of where we're at um, from from gig to gig on certain songs so we know that we're kind of in the ballpark uh, and, it, and, it, and, and those are good tools to use for for sure I mean you know yeah. having to practice with metronome is great and and uh, there's um, there's a device that just came out that I'm I'm uh, I'm using called the Soundburner Pulse and it's a, yes. it's a metronome that vibrates yeah I've seen that yeah, and um, I did a demo for them uh, a month ago or so, and um, it's definitely a game changer in terms of how you play to a click because there's no sound. I mean, you can you know you, you can connect it with your your, your phone and uh, you can turn on the the click sound if you want to. But the whole idea of it is to remove the sound of the metronome and just embrace the feeling of the pulse. And it definitely it took a, you know. As somebody that grew up playing with, you know, click tracks, and, and I continue to use them, uh, this was an interesting 
change and feeling in my body because I put it on my chest and uh, and it took a, a minute to it, well I mean you know, it took a minute to adjust uh, because you know it's, it's something new but but once you do and once you kind of relinquish the 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 idea that you know you're 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 trying to, to concentrate on it and you just kind of let go and just feel this pulse and you play naturally it's actually a really cool tool it, it, it works well and I and I hope that um, I hope that it takes off and you know drummers start to use this thing and other musicians start to use it too because because you know when you think about the traditional metronome uh, clicking sound or whatnot that you use you know for practice or you know live or uh, in a studio situation um, there's this concentration that has to happen you have to listen to this clicking thing you know that's going on and then you also have to go kind of listen through that and then get to the music and not only listen to what, what you're playing but what everybody else is playing so there's all these different things that are going on and yes. you're, you're trying to in a sense ignore that click to get through it to listen to what's happening and it's a it's an interesting way to go about listening and performing because there's you know you don't really want to ignore certain things and pay it you know focus on other aspects you kind of just want to focus, you know, and <laughs> what's going on. So right. playing to the click is, it, it removes a little bit of the experience of the, the now experience of what's happening because you're having to deal with this external element that's kind of like a nuisance. And with the Soundbrenner Pulse, I feel like I'm doing a commercial for something. <laughs> oh, right. No, uh, no, I, I love this because I, I've seen the, I've seen the demos, and I saw J.R. Robinson, and it just uh, do it, and it, it, it really fascinated me. But, um, but no, this is good. This is good. I mean, so, so basically, what it does is it removes that element of the, the sound, so that you can focus on just feeling naturally, and and with that, you know, with. With feeling it kind of naturally, you're going to move a little bit. Like your beat is going to move, you know, on the backside, you know, depending on how you play but, and how you think about playing. But if you're, if you're not so strict about how you, your inner clock is, you know, how you're counting or whatnot or how you're feeling things, then you're, it's going to sound more organic and natural. And when we have that click thing in your ear going, it's like you want to, it's harder to kind of relax and lay back on things because, you know, you want to be with that click too, you know, and playing with the click. And I've played with clicks on live gigs, uh, you know, like when I was doing Alley and AJ's gig and other, and, and some other gigs. And it's part of it is like relaxing because you realize that, you know, the job is done for you. All you have to do is kind of play along and you don't have to worry about anybody coming up to you after the gig and saying that was too fast or that was too slow or what. That's that's what the that's what the live BPM thing has helped with, or I think that that kind of takes the, you know, the the there's the, there's no room for argument. It's like no no that's that's one twenty we played it. That's what we've been playing it at, or exactly. or it felt fast. He goes yeah, and, and that's this has happened. And this we had a. Uh, a gig where the uh, the artist is like, yeah, we usually play with a click, and it was a th- it was a run and gun gig that we did the other night, and I threw up the live BPM, and and it's like there's no there was no way to run ear uh, run ears or do any of that stuff or uh, any clicks and stuff, and so I said, did anyone notice we played about six clicks faster on that song? And they're just everyone's like, 
no. I said, well, we did, <laughs> you know, because I saw it, you know, but once yeah. we were there and it was feeling good and it's like, well, this is, this is faster than we normally play it, but everybody was into it and it was fine. And, um, there was a lot of trust within the group anyways, but at least I can make a note. It's like, well, that was interesting. <laughs> well, it is interesting. And have you, have you noticed, have you ever noticed that when you, um, when you hear certain bands that are maybe like working bands that are doing, you know, corporate gigs or, or functions or what whatnot, that when they're doing top 40 tunes, that a lot of them play the songs way faster than the original recorded tempo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's a result of just them being comfortable playing the song over and over and over and over and over again. And they don't hear it as being faster. Yeah. They they hear that as being comfortable. I mean, I've had that arg- uh, that you know, I don't want to say argument. It has been an argument at times with some people, but that discussion with um, with many you know band leaders when they want to count tunes in, and they I know that they're just notorious for counting things in way too fast. I'm like, that's too fast. That's too fast. I can you know they're they're clicking their fingers before they start the tune. I'm like, that's too fast. That's too fast. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then they realize it once you know they get into the song and they're having to sing the lyrics or whatnot that that it is too fast. You know, so um, you know time is a time is a funny thing. You know, it doesn't it's it's. It's it's an experience that that's constantly moving. I mean, you know, that's why that saying, I guess, you know, uh, you know, time flies and you're having fun, and you know, it's a real drag, and you don't want to be doing something, you know, and, yeah. and like, you know, and it, and it, but how does time have that ability to 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 shift that way? You know, I mean, as keepers of time. Uh, and, and, and as uh, you know, that's that's our job in life is to you know study time. It's fascinating to me that time doesn't exist the way I, I think of it, or the way I think most people think of it or or feel it. It's it's a moving thing, you know. It's it's not a constant one twenty beat per minute thing. It's like it's moving around faster and slower, you know. Yeah. yeah. And the click track is there to you know. Uh, it's it's there to keep bands from or, or whatever from from moving too far in one direction or the other, but I don't think music benefits entirely from you know exacting metronomic time. I, like like I give you that example with Eric Clapton and the Blues. Like, can you imagine? Can you imagine if if most jazz musicians from the forties fifties were Recording to a click track, yeah, it yeah. would just be awful, you know. And yes, there are some music that needs, you know, or wants to have that, you know, very uh, stiff, rigid, or whatever, you know, unrelenting pulse that just stays right there. But I, I just, I don't buy that into that belief that you know that means you have good time when you don't budge, you know, three, four, five beats a minute in in any given direction. I. I I'm a jazz musician. I'm a blues musician. I, I believe in things breathing naturally. Yeah. And yes, you want to work with a quick track if you have, you know, I've had issues. I still have issues. I'm still, I still work with a metronome to this day in my daily practice um, to, to develop your inner clock so that you can get a stronger sense of, uh, you know, solid, whatever solid time is. But I'm very careful to, you know, understand and be aware that Things should breathe and move naturally. I know a friend of mine, a guitar player friend of mine, uh, Gannon Arnold. Uh, we grew up together, and, and he's he's been playing with some you know more pop 
pop rock acts. And um, uh, Jimmy Chamberlain, uh, he, he plays with Jimmy Chamberlain. Yeah. And when he was playing with Jimmy Chamberlain, uh, he told me a story that Jimmy would say during rehearsals, okay, well, we're going to do this tune, and when we get to the chorus, like he was, he was, I guess they were practicing with the metronome or whatever, but and they would have a certain tempo, and, and they would play the verse at that tempo, and he said, when we get to the chorus, we're going to bump it up two beats a minute. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to come back down for the verse, and we're going to do... I thought that was an interesting way of, you know, approaching playing music. Like, oh, we're going we're gonna to make the choruses just a little bit faster, yeah. you know, and then we're going to come back. But music kind of has that, you know, ebb and flow in it naturally. It's funny to, like, you know dictate that and put that on there like oh now we get to the course we're gonna we're gonna go faster you know purposely go faster you know right right and you there's know, so there's I'm, stories of the studio doing that as well i'm sure yeah yeah well, you know, well and, and there's something you know because they realize when it, when it's at this tempo and it stays at this tempo it doesn't feel right mm-hmm. you know i mean as a as a producer uh myself and, and some of the things that i've done you know you when you're before you hit the record button and and establish what tempo you're going to do this song at, you have to sit with it for a while and go, is this the right tempo for this song? And you sit with it and you're like, I don't know, it seems a little bit fast. Or you slow it down and you you start recording it at 100 beats a minute instead of 102 beats a minute. And then you realize, man, this is way too slow. You know, two beats a minute was way too slow. And then you're you're going, maybe it should be 101. Or maybe it should be 101.3, you know? Yeah, right. Well, and and oftentimes I've had band leaders, uh, when I was studying more jazz, they were saying, now when you want to feel the tempo, and they weren't going off some metronome and keeping track of BPMs next to the song, you know, and everything. They're like, sing the chorus. Where do you want that chorus to sit? There's your tempo. Well, that's true. You know. That's true, and and yet, um, you know, it, it's that that there's a magic, you know, there's a magic tempo for certain songs. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. Well, let me ask you something. Uh, you you teach because Caton Burns was one of your students, right? Yeah. And are you still? Do you have a roster of students, or is it a, a regular part of what you do? I have some people that want some information. Yes. <laughs> well, you're you're doing it now, man. Um, so let me ask you because within because I, I I've had this discussion before with people who are like uh, they say well, you know what about the the influx of machines or people programming uh, music for you know pop music and and this kind of the way that the studio environment has changed and the way music I guess I should say the way music is produced has changed I'm asked to play to a click in the studio live. I'm asked to recreate this time feel, this strict metronomic time feel. But how do you 
so so we all have these like this is kind of bullshit where you you know you 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 can't play in perfect metro- metronomic time with these different styles or these different things music has to ebb and flow so it's i believe it's possible to accomplish both but how what would be your advice to um drummers that are kind of getting into this genre where they're required to use these tools to recreate the strict metronomic feel and yet sound human well it's it's a complicated you know subject because number one um well let me just say that i think that that over time, over the last several decades, and I, I may have mentioned it, I know that when I um, I did um, uh, a question or so modern, with Modern Drummer, and we talked about kind of this this thing about, you know, um, music and moving forward and how things are felt nowadays. And, and I, yeah. think, um, I think drummers over the last, you know, several decades, and musicians in general, as a result of the 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 drum machine uh, programming into music since the 80s. I think overall uh, musicians, especially drummers, their time, their their inner clock has has progressed, has gotten better naturally. It's gotten better, you know, mm-hmm. out the aid of of a metronome. Like I think that that you know these, these latest generations are feeling time in a more uh, I, I don't. I don't want to be careful when I choose my words here. In a more precise, it's been way. a positive influence. In other words, it's it, it's positive or negative. It is what it is. I mean, they, they if if modern music and the music that you know the last generations from the '90s, 2000, whatever, have been listening to has been mainly recorded with a click track, and it's mainly the music that they're listening to. Then they're going to feel time in that way. They're they're not listening to jazz music for the most part. The majority, yeah, of them. yeah. listening to blues music. You know, if they do get to listen to music from the sixties, fifties, sixties, seventies, you know, classic rock, whatever. Uh, a lot of it was done recorded with a click. I mean, some of it was recorded with a the majority of it probably was not. Uh, mm-hmm. But if if the majority of music that you know people today, the younger generations, are listening to, I would say, safe to say, the vast majority, ninety percent or more, is done to a click. Then, and that's the music that they continue to hear, and it's what they're feeding themselves. Then, it's training them to feel time in a, in a very kind of you know strict way or or precise way. Yeah. So. Does that affect how they go into a situation if, you know, uh, you take a, a drummer in their 20s, you know, and I calls him up and says, hey, uh, I, I need, I'm looking for a drummer, and we're, we're, we're in our 50s, and we're just, we want to play some bars in the area, and uh, we're a blues band, and we just need a drummer. We need to find a good drummer. Can you come in and audition? You know, and this is actually, this is, this, is real, this is a real story that I'm pulling this from, mm-hmm. because this band that I know of cannot find a drummer. <laughs> they just can't. They've been auditioning forever because they're trying to find a guy that's going to just fit in musically and play musically with them and not think about, you know, metronomically perfect time and not play, you know, as many licks as they possibly can because, you know, they're influenced by gospel drummers or whatnot. So, 
you know, what's happening, there's a danger, I think, in in thinking about metronomically perfect precision time, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it, because music shouldn't shouldn't be recorded that way or shouldn't feel that way. Zappa talked about this too. And um, so, you know, what's the answer? Well, practice to a metronome, you know, listen to the music that you're listening to that's been recorded with the click track. And, and if that's what you like, that's what you like. But also, you know, listen to music that has not been recorded. Listen to classical music, listen to jazz music, listen to blues music, listen to music that is more about, you know, the feeling and not necessarily about precision and then get a taste for that and then understand that when you go into a situation you 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 have to listen to what's going on around you so the answer is going to be how do i play with these musicians do i play drums the way that i've practiced drums and the way that i think about drums and am i coming from you know this experience from a dramatic you know, standpoint. Like I, I'm, I'm playing. I'm the drum. I'm the timekeeper. I'm the drummer, and I'm going to keep this solid. Mm-hmm. Or, or do you really listen to how the the, the singer is phrasing, uh, you know, their their rhythms and how the bass player is playing, whether or not he's playing on top or laid back, or or how, what the guitar riff is doing, or what whatnot. I mean, you have to just listen and fit in to whatever is happening in that moment and yeah. and sort of be a chameleon and and yes you you as a drummer you want to make sure that things aren't moving too far in any direction and that's your job but your job is to make it feel good period in right. in my opinion not to be a program drum machine and play perfect metronomic time so Whatever you know, I don't, I don't care. Whatever genre it is that you're playing, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. have to listen to what's happening around you and adapt to that feeling in that moment. And it could change from song to song, and it'll change from band to band and band member to band member how they feel. Time. I mean, time is not is not a universally you know, tr- it's not a universal truth. It's not felt the same by every single person. Obviously, so. That's why if I play with a certain bass player and we play, you know, we count off the first tune we never met before and we count off the first tune, like last night that happened. I did a gig last night and I, I didn't know the bass player. It was the first time I played with the bass player. And, you know, you have that, you know, that feeling before you play, like, oh, brother, this is not the bass player I'm used to playing with. I hope this guy's good. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I heard him warming up and he was playing along to a song that was being played over the speakers and he was matching it perfectly and it felt really good. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be a good night. This guy, this guy can play, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and sure enough, as soon as we started playing from bar one, it was locking in. It felt good. At least to me, it felt good. And, and, uh, we glanced at each other, you know, after, you know, half the tune and had a smile like, you know, this, this feels good. And the whole night just felt great to me. And he came up to me after he was like, man, that, that just felt really great. And I, and I agreed with him. I'm like, yeah, yeah awesome. With you. But some bass players, it's like a, it's like, it's like having a boxing match with them. And, and it's not that, you're right or they're right or whatever. It's just that people feel time in different places. So certain, you know, certain musicians are going to play well with each other. And I don't know if that necessarily means that, that they're listening better, but I can tell you that the guys that do listen more intently 
are better players from in, in terms of how I feel about them. You know, they, they it's easier to play with them when they're listening to what's going on around them. Um, but you know, certain certain people, you know, just feel the beat in a certain way. I mean, you know, when you when you play jazz, when I play jazz with you know jazz musicians that play upright bass. You know, they play, the guys that I like, play in a certain way that pushes the pulse. It, like, it makes it easy for me to play. There's nothing worse than having a bass player play behind the beat when they're trying to swing. It's just a terrible feeling. But at the same time, if I'm playing, you know, funk or rock or whatever, and I got a guy that's, you know, playing on top of the beat, like you put driving it like he would, you know, an upright bass, that feels terrible, too. So yeah, it, yeah. It, it's like you... You got to adjust. You got to adjust to what's happening, and it took me years, and I'm still working on it. You know, it's a, oh, a never-ending. Yeah. It is thing, but but I would have this conversation with a, a bass player friend of mine, Dave Carpenter. We would take long drives down to San Diego to play with Gregory Page, and we would talk. And we were in like three or four bands at that time, and one of the bands that we played with was a band called Speak. And it was it was psychedelic kind of funk stuff. And when I first got with them, uh, I was asking him questions about like how how he was feeling, time or how it felt, you know, when I was playing with him, or like because he played behind the beat. He was he was one of those, you know. He also grew up listening to to blues and rock and and jazz stuff, and, and so he could do both. But he he was definitely more of a sits back behind the beat kind of a guy, and when I first started playing with him, I was the youngest guy in the band. And so I always felt like they knew more than I did and I was going to learn from them. And so my time would drag because I would be trying to play with what was going on. So if he was playing behind the beat, I kept kind of creeping back to try to match what he was doing. And he would try to sit behind me and it was just this spiral that would just slow down, you know? And so we'd have these conversations. Like he would say, man, you're the drummer. Damn it. You know, just stay there. (laughs) And let us play around you. And that was a weird concept for me. I was like, because growing up, I never, I didn't play with a bass player. We had two guitar players in the band. No, we couldn't find a bass player. So I never had that experience of like really working with a bass player. Interesting. you know, so so when I finally did get to start playing and really paying attention to the relationship of of the bass and how important of a role that is in, in the music and how it makes it feel, <clears throat> I was like, wow, so I have to kind of just be this centerpiece and everybody has to kind of like move around me. But And, and the truth is, yes, it, like that's what makes the beat wide and feel good is when things aren't exactly on top of each other, when they're spread out a little bit more, when the bass right, is a little right. bit center and the the, key, the keyboard or the guitars are a little bit pushing that makes it be wide and it makes it feel good so the answer is you know listen to what's yeah have good metronomic pull you know time and work with a metronome and at the same time listen to what's going on around you and be able to to, to move a little bit and 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 don't don't stress out or worry too much about oh wow we sped up a couple of beats per minute or right or, right sped up in general you know I mean so are you originally from New York I am I'm from Long Island New York okay I studied at the, the Long Island Drum Center okay. and uh, Fred Wang was my teacher and I think he's no longer with us but um, I started playing drums when I was 12 years old um, back in, in Long Island, Bayport Long Island New York um, you know got into music 
you know, when I was free, I mean, my parents weren't musicians. They they just loved music. So music was was on, you know, in in the, on the radio 24 hours a day. And I have two older sisters, and you know, they had music cranking 24 hours a day. So um, my best friends were across the street from me, and a couple of houses down. And uh, you know, they they got guitars, I, I guess, for one Christmas. And I said, all right, well, I want to get a guitar too. And they said, no, you got to be the drummer. <laughs> Nope. <laughs> Hanging on cardboard boxes, and you know we started playing Devo and and some. When I discovered the Beatles and and um, and uh, I think I the Tiger was popular at that point. I'm dating myself now. This is crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, so so you know, and then my sister, uh, my oldest sister, was going out to clubs and she said, you know, one of her boyfriends or whatever was playing in this band. Uh, I think they were called Nova and Scott, uh, I'm trying to remember his last name, but I can't remember his last name right now. But anyway, um, he had those North drums. You remember those North drums? Yeah. 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 The ones that, that kind of curve out. Yeah. So he had a set of the, like a 17 piece, you know, drum set. What? And yeah, it was crazy. And, uh, and so I went to see them live, and I was really blown away. And he came out, you know, he was playing the huge kit and everything, and the band sounded great, and I was probably 12 years old. And then he came out to the front uh, to do one tune, and he just brought his floor tom and the snare drum. And he played a tune just on the, the floor and the snare. It was just a simple, basic, you know, eighth note, two and four in the snare beat. And I was, it sounded so good to me. It sounded so rock solid i was blown away you know and he became my first music teacher wow and um um and so he's like okay and then he brought over stick control <laughs> you know and uh, and we had formal lessons and i'm like oh this this sucks i don't want to do this <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to go through stick control you know i just want to play music i want to rock out and so he's like well evan i think it's time for you to get uh, Scott Monroe was his name and, okay. and he said, time for you to get a drum set and I said no I like my cardboard boxes <laughs> and uh, but then he convinced me that getting a drum set I was into Stuart Copeland too and you know and um, he's like man we, we'll get you you know you'll get a Tama kit you know and be like just like Stuart Copeland I'm like alright alright I'll do yeah, it yeah right 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 uh, my parents got me a um, a Tama kit, and uh, you know, I just remember having just a love fascination with drums. I mean, the very first fascination I had with them. I, I always wanted to play the drums. I think when I was in third grade, because you know, when you're in second or third grade elementary school, they they send you home with that sheet of you know saying, "Go oh, ask your parents if you're you know pick a, pick an instrument and then have your parents sign this sheet of paper." And I went home and I, I had them check off the drums and I came back and they said, sorry, we have too many drummers. You'll have to pick something else. <laughs> Bummed out because this pretty girl was playing drums and I wanted to stand next to her, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I, I picked the, the, the trombone because I just wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked the trombone 
did that for a few days, and then that got old. And I was walking home from school one day with my buddy, and he was playing the trumpet, and his case was a lot smaller and looked a lot lighter. And I somehow convinced him that trombone was a way hipper instrument and that he should check it out. So we we, tra- we, we traded on the walk home, and I'm like, man, this was a great trade. This is so much lighter. And... Uh, <laughs> he loves the trombone, thankfully. I, I thought we were just going to trade for a couple of days. He's like, dude, I love this instrument. I'm playing. I'm going to play trombone. I'm like, well, that's great. I'll just stick stick with the trumpet. So I played trumpet for like five five years. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, during that time though, I was, I, you know, my dad would take me down to the, to the hardware store and he would buy dowels and cut them up for me and make, you know, uh, homemade drumsticks. And I remember just beating on my, my desktop, you know, and wanting to play drums, but, but never really having that experience until, um, until I was forced into it. I was forced to be the drummer through my friends, you know, but it was, it was cool. I was, I was down and, uh, um, it, it uh, you know, we, like I said, you know, we, we didn't have a bass player at that time, so it was two guitars and, and drums. But then eventually, when you know, we we formed a band and had an official uh, uh, you know keyboard player and bass player, and we started doing gigs. I think I was 13 when I started playing, you know, out in clubs, and um, uh, you know that 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 was an amazing experience. My best friends and you know we were playing music every day after school. Yeah, those are the best, man. Basement and out for a couple hours and you know learn all the tunes and um and then when i was 15 or 16 my parents decided to move to california so i finished high school out here and i met a lot of really good musicians uh gannon arnold who i mentioned in high school and he turned me on to um jazz in a sense not uh, he 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 was influenced by al Miola and alan holdsworth mm-hmm. and mahavishnu and Korea and things like that, and I, that was a whole world of music I, I had no idea about. So uh, we were living down in South Orange County, and there was a club down there called the Coach House in San Juan Capistrano, and they they brought in national acts. And so Gannon said, well, "We got to go see this guy Aldi Miola." Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I was you know 15 or 16 years old, and we're sitting in the front row and they come down the stairs and they get on the stage and they grab their shoes and they start playing. And I, I was, Tom Breckline was playing drums, <clears throat> who was also a teacher of mine, uh, a great teacher, a uh, great drummer. And um, he was playing drums. I didn't know who it was back then. I just knew that I was sitting, you know, two feet away from this guy that was playing drums better than anyone I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And and Kiyakagi was playing keyboards. I can't remember who the bass player was, but anyway, Aldi Miel is sweating on us. You know, we're, we're sitting that close, and it was it was a life changing experience. I mean, it, I went from wanting to be you know the next Ringo Starr and Stuart Colpin to I want to be a jazz musician. Yeah, you know, it, it really had a huge impact. And then from there. I saw uh, Branford and Wynton Marsalis. My parents took me to, to to listen to them at a performing arts center, and um, I saw Jeff Tane Watts playing drums, swinging, and I just said, "That's it. That, I found it. I know what I want to do. I want to swing for the rest of my life," <laughs> you know. And uh, I went down that rabbit hole. I mean, I was into the you know the Chakri Electric Band and all that stuff too. Sure. But I really started getting into Miles and Coltrane and Dexter Gordon and you know Sonny Rollins and and it just that whole thing that just kept that was the rabbit hole that I really wanted to go down. So 
when I was 17, uh, Gannon and I, you know, uh, we decided that, you know, he was also interested in, in, in learning uh, jazz standards as well. And Roy Burns, who was my teacher from when I was, when I moved out here um, up until I was around 20, uh, he told him, and, and he, and obviously, you know, he, he came from Benny Goodman's band and Woody Herman, and he was, you know, part of that swing period and big band period. Interesting. I mean, Peter Erskine, Roy Burns, Jeff Hamilton were my main teachers for many sure. years. Yeah. All being big band drummers, and I and I I, ne- I never really played them. I mean, I played with Maynard Ferguson, but it wasn't a big band. It was the big Bob Nouveau band, so it wasn't. But uh, I've never really played in a big band. I mean, I played in a big band in college, like college kind of thing, but not like not for very long. I was and I, I was the second drummer, so I only played a couple of tunes. But it's interesting to me that I really and I really don't I don't gravitate towards big band music. But it's interesting to me that all my teachers were big big band drummers. But uh, anyhow. Um, so Roy, Roy Burns was like, okay, well, if you want to learn how to play jazz, then, and I, I didn't understand. I was listening to Tony Williams. I was listening to Jack Dijonette. I was listening to Elvin, but I didn't understand a thing of what was going on. It made zero sense to me. I yeah. just knew that I liked it. I to figure it out. It was like a, it was a puzzle to me, and I didn't like feeling like I was not in the know. And uh, and, and Roy was like, well, what are you listening to? I'm like, well, I'm listening to, to Miles Davis. I'm listening to to, you know, Tony Williams, a 17-year-old Tony Williams playing the most ridiculous breakneck tempos. I'm listening to Elvin Jones and John Coltrane. I'm listening to, like, Jack Net playing with, you know, Keith Jarrett trio. And he's like, well, you can't start there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And he's like, here. And he gives me this tape, and it's a Richie Cole tape cassette, you know? And, and uh, he goes, go home and learn how to play some of these tunes. So I, I went home and I listened to it, and it was just, a, you know, just basic swing. You know, yeah. take, take two and four in the hi-hat, real simple. I'm like, I think I understand this. Like, I think I can do this, you know. So it was a, Richie Cole was my gateway drug into being able to play jazz. And, uh, you know, so from there, I just kind of, you know, I still kept in touch with my, my love for uh, playing you know, rock music and singer-songwriter music, and I mean, I've played in, I've played in every kind of band you can imagine. I mean, I've played in reggae bands and country bands, and you know, you know, top forty bands and original bands and psychedelic bands. I, I just try to do everything I possibly can because, as a working drummer and a drummer that wants to work, you have to be open to playing many different styles. Right. So, so I um. You know, so I, I embraced that, and at that point, you know, I said, "Yeah, you know, let's let's just start our own group, our own trio." So we, I did that. I, I started going around and um, to, to clubs and restaurants and saying, "You know, I, I've got a jazz trio, and we want to play here." And we landed some gigs. We landed this one gig in a restaurant that we played a brunch and a dinner set. So we were playing for seven hours. Wow! Every Sunday. And I would bring in a different bass player for the brunch set, and, a, and another different bass player for the dinner set. And we, and I would all, you know, I would call all these different guys in LA and network as much as I could with different musicians, and different bass players at that time. And that's when I realized that you know different bass players feel time in different ways because there were certain guys that as soon as we played, it felt great immediately, you know. Yeah. But um, so yeah, so then I just started, you know, doing a lot of jazz 
and learning, you know, how to play all those standards and, and listening to that music. And at the same time, I was playing with singer-songwriters, I was playing in country bands, I was playing, you know, reggae band, I was a lot of original music. Um, so I just tried to, to, to do as many things as I possibly could and meet as many people as I possibly could. And, um, you know, because I, I enjoy playing all different styles of music. And that eventually led to... Uh, the Translucent Ham Sandwich Band, you know, years later, like, what do I want to do with my music? Well, I, I want to embrace everything that I love and put it all in one thing at one time. So that's how the Translucent Ham Sandwich Band came to be. Okay. And, and some, of the, some of the other people, I know you've worked with uh, Greg Adams, who was a trumpet player with Tower Power. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a great experience, especially being able to play... Uh, what is hip and don't change horses and, and with Lenny Williams when he came in to sing with us because we were going to go and do this thing called East Bay Soul which was a side project for Greg <clears throat> and uh, he said well I'm going to get Lenny Williams to sing and, and we're like great we're going to finally do some Tower Power tunes <laughs> That's why, that was going to be my question are you doing Tower Power tunes but that that's awesome we did a, for a minute we did uh, three or four tunes there's a recording that I have of um uh, uh, what's the tune? Um, why am I blanking on the, the name of the song? But Phil Perry was singing, and talk about an amazing singer. Phil Perry um, uh, sang with us, but, but before Phil Perry came in, we did rehearsals with Lenny Williams, and I remember the first time doing What Is Hip with with you know both Greg and Lenny and just having this surreal moment like, oh my God, this is... This is really happening. Like I used to practice, and I still did. You know, I practiced to to Tower of Power records and try to mimic Dave Garibaldi, and 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 I'm getting a chance to do this with the real guy, the guy that did this. This is this is pinching. That's amazing. That's awesome. To man. hear Lenny's voice, you know, coming through the speakers was just a trip. I mean, I've had that experience a few times with certain certain artists, but that was that was a surreal moment for me, you know, and. Uh, and and that didn't work out to where Lenny was was singing with us on a regular basis. That ended fairly quickly. But Phil Perry came in, and if you don't know who Phil Perry is, look him up because okay, my God, that man is has the, the gift from the heavens. You know, his voice is just unbelievable. And there's a recording that I have on my SoundCloud page of us playing live, um, and uh, uh, you're still the young man. That's the, that's the tune, okay. and um, it, he's. It's just. It, it, it was such an amazing thing to be able to play those tunes and to try to channel my inner David Garibaldi. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I did that with Greg for about. You know, we played together for about five. I, mean, I think it was about five years or so. I still play with him every once in a while. We do this uh, this yearly um, uh, concert for a radio station down here in Southern California, and. Uh, he shows up and and we, we get to play a couple of tunes, um, but uh, yeah, I did his band for about five years or so and uh, recorded uh, recorded um, a couple albums with him. Got a chance to uh, sit on, on a session and share album duties uh, with Vinny Caliuta. That was pretty amazing. He's he's a wow. hero. Wow, wow! So I got to watch Vinny record uh, a couple of tracks uh, in the studio and and watch him work, and uh, that was a pretty amazing experience. Um, Did you take a so, lesson uh, from him as well? 
I had a lesson with Vinny. Yeah, uh, it was a, it was a birthday present from uh, Brian Bromberg uh, and Lucille Hunt, his manager, um, when I graduated high school. Uh, well, I was I was I was taking lessons also. With, I've taken lessons with so many guys. I, I, Joel Taylor is a great drummer out here. Uh, he was playing with Brian Bromberg's group, and I, I was seventeen or eighteen. I was seventeen or eighteen at, at the time, and uh, was just. You know, following them intent, you know, intensely, and just you know, wanting to learn all their songs. And um, Brian Bromberg's an amazing bass player, and so it it worked itself out to where we became friends. And I wound up uh, driving the band around to their gigs throughout, you know, like Arizona and, and uh, Nevada or whatever. And so um, uh, I got that, yeah. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so. Um, what was I saying? So anyway, uh, yeah. So it was my graduation present from from them to take a drummer that I wanted to take a lesson with. Yeah. And at that time, I was very heavily influenced by Dave Weckl. Yeah. And I mean, I still am, but but at that time it was like Dave Weckl was king. He was on every cover of every drum magazine, and you know, uh, and I had the the Yamaha, you know, uh, cherry red. You know, recording Recording custom. Okay. Thing and and uh, and I was like, you know, Dave Weckl, Dave Weckl. I wanted, you know, I was thinking I wanted to take a lesson with Dave Weckl. Um, and I remember, I remember listening to a John Patitucci, John Patitucci's first solo album. It was just self-titled John Patitucci, and Mm -hmm. I put this CD on, and I'm listening to, I think it was. Baja Baja, I think it was, I don't know, maybe the second or third track. And I'm thinking in my head that it's Dave Weckl playing. And then I started reading the credits, and I see this name, Vinny, and I couldn't pronounce his last name, like, Carlo, you know? <laughs> <laughs> this guy, this guy sounds amazing. I mean, the, 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 and then Peter Erskine was also on that record. He played a swing tune, which sounded amazing. <clears throat> um, and so uh, I remember asking uh if i could take a lesson with vinny and um it worked itself out i got to meet meet vinny beforehand he was doing a gig with brian at this place called bon appetit in westwood and um and so we worked it out i I got to go over to his house and spend two three hours with him and i had all these questions i wanted to ask him about you know his playing with frank zappa and how to play odd time stuff and metric modulate and all this stuff and he was like, you know, he said, hey, you know, Evan, I appreciate that you, you spent the time to, you know, put your notes together and that you you came prepared. But let me hear you play a rock beat. <laughs> you know? What? He's like, yeah. He's like, sit down behind the kit. It was his, you know, white Yamaha kit. And uh, I said, rock beat. So I, I picked up the sticks and I sat down, a little nervous, you know, and I, I'm half-assed playing like a rock beat, like, like this, you know? And I played it and and he's like, okay, that's cool, cool. But more like this. And he sat down, and he just played one and three on the kick, two and four on the snare, eight notes on the hi-hat. But my God, it sounded like the heavens opened up, and, you know, Thor, with God was coming down. The hammer of God was coming down and just, like, punching you in the face, going, how is this possible that you're playing that simple beat that I thought was so stupid that I couldn't, you know, I didn't want to play an eighth note beat, one and three, two and four, because that was way beneath me, you know, like I, I was way more into the hipper stuff, you know? Right, right. You know, and, and I'm sitting there going, my eyes were opening, 
and my ears couldn't believe what they were hearing. Uh, and I'm like, well, how are you doing that? <laughs> you know? And, and he said to me, he said, he said, you have to, more than anything, you have to play the drums like it's the last time you're ever going to play. Mm. And three hours of, you know, music and questions and, and talking about drums, and I got a chance, he, he had two drum sets in there, so I got a chance to trade fours with my hero. <laughs> wow. That was an experience. But um, uh, the one thing that I walked away with from that from that three-hour lesson was to pl always play like it was the last time I was ever going to play it and to to mean every note that I played and to take everything seriously, even the simplest of beats. It's not, uh, it's to, to view everything as being important. I remember having a lesson with, uh, a, a, a impromptu lesson with Kenwood Denard, great Kenwood Denard. Yeah. And, because my group, uh, would, you know, after we saw Alzi Mule at the coach house, um, we, we made a recording and um, then we started opening up for all these acts. We were like the house jazz band that opened up for, uh, you know, like the Yellow Jackets and we, we wound up opening up for Chicory Electric Band too. So I got to meet all these guys. And <clears throat> so for a couple of years, we were we were meeting all these great musicians and, and I was hanging out with these drummers and I would have them come over to, the, to you know, the house and give me a lesson when I could or when, when it worked out. And and Ken uh, Kenward at that point was playing with Stanley Jordan, guitar play, great guitar player Stanley Jordan. Yeah. And we were hanging out upstairs in the green room before the before the uh, the gig, and having dinner. And, and um, we're sitting on the couch, and I'm, I'm asking him for a lesson. I'm like, hey, Kenward, I, I really want a drum lesson. He's like, Well, he's like, Yeah, that, that's cool. I mean, I've got, I got to go back to New York, you know, tomorrow. But maybe the next time we come out or whatever, I'm like, Yeah, I really, really want a lesson, man. I really want a lesson with you. And he's like, okay, so we're, we're talking on the couch, and you know, Gannon sitting next to me, and you know, Stanley Jordan's walking around, this commotion going on, and and apparently he could tell that my focus, even though I was having a conversation with him, that my focus was somewhere else, and he's talking to me, and I'm nodding and going, uh huh, uh huh, yeah, uh huh, and then he said, Evan, what did I just say? <laughs> And I must have turned white as a ghost because I wasn't listening. Yeah. And I wasn't paying attention to what he was saying. And I just looked at him with like a deer in the headlights look. And, and after a few uncomfortable moments of silence, he looked at me and he said, end of lesson. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You, know, you, you don't forget lessons like that. Yeah, yeah. Never forget. Always remember. I love this going full circle back to how we started this conversation. The, the, the choice of words and slogans that are used, like for 9-11, was never forget. And it's interesting how they chose that slogan over always remember. You know, the, the, the lighter, more peaceful version. Never forget. You know, and, and that ties into, I think, you know, how, how, how society reacts to, uh, you know, these, these slogans and these things that are kind of uh, embedded into their psyche or, or how they're brainwashed into thinking about things. You know, like I was thinking about this this morning, you know, Star, you know thinking about the Star Wars stuff, and, and uh, uh, I don't know why, but it took me down this path of... Uh, <laughs> 
I did the Bride of the Valkyries and Wagner music and how how closely it is to uh, you know uh, somebody somebody said it was a lesson it was a lesson I was uh, with a student I was playing rhythms on the drum pad and I wouldn't tell him the song that it was I just said what song is this and I would play you know like a Christmas tune or whatever and he would guess it immediately like that's how powerful oh rhythm. yeah 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 you know? uh, but but it was interesting to me you know to think you know they use the slogan use the force. Well, or, and then the movie is called Star Wars. Like, why isn't it Star Peace? Isn't that we're all, what we're trying to achieve is, you know, a peaceful solution instead of a, you know, warring solution? So it's, it's interesting what, you know... Well, why, why Jar Jar Binks, you know? So, I mean, it's really tough to go down that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you use, use the force. And when you look up force, and it's, it's the importance of things. Like, you know, how, how this relates to what Vinny said to me is, like, you know, make everything important. Okay, well, if I make everything important in my playing, well, that has to carry over to everything else in, in my life, and I have to look view things as as being significant and important, you know. So you you look at a slogan like "Never forget" versus "Always remember," and you can feel the difference in that. Yes, you can. Yeah, you sure. Can feel, well, words matter. What's that? Words matter, man. Language is powerful. Absolutely matter, and, and it's the meaning. And the meaning that you put behind that word that gives it the, its, its power, you know, and it's the meaning behind the the the, 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 the cordial pulse that you play that gives that song its purpose and meaning. You know, it's it's all connected. Everything is connected. You know, if you feel that playing a cordial pulse is important to you, then it's going to be conveyed. That's why guys like, and I know I'm bouncing back and forth, but that's why guys like Phil Rudd from ACDC. Yeah. And play a, a simple rock beat that most people think is stu- is stupid or whatever. Yeah. And and bonehead, but play it like oh yeah. Nobody's because not everybody can do that. You can teach. I can teach anybody how to play a basic rock beat, but not everybody is going to play it like Phil Rudd. No. I think we've covered so much stuff, and I think that there's the stuff that I've written down um, that we didn't cover is stuff that's going to be part of the show notes and stuff that you've done that um, I don't think were necessary to rehash, if you will. Um, there's a lot of great stuff online, and I'll, I'll mention it too. Um, just some of the videos that you've got. Um, you're just playing your ass off, man. Really great, um, great playing, great solo ideas, lots of things for people to see and hear. Thank but, you. But I, I, I just... It's been fun to kind of take take the what's been kind of uh, a little bit of a norm, uh, a, a different direction here, uh, with this kind of some more, um, you know. I know we're connecting the dots with some of this uh, ethereal concepts and things like that. So uh, it's been fun, man. It's been really cool to um, kind of see uh, uh, where the conversation is going to, uh, where it was going um, with the things that you're talking about, but. Um, I again, man. Um, it was when Caton recommended uh, your name. Uh, I was going through. I was like, well, I, I I haven't heard of Evan, but let me let me look around. And I'm like, yeah, this is. I think this is going to be good. Just just from the surface, just from the from the get go. Um, and then um, and then getting a little bit more information uh, as I dug deeper and in conversation with Caton. Um, it's been great, man. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to open up and, and share with us your, your thoughts I, and stuff. And that. 
absolutely, absolutely. I, I appreciate you you wanting to talk to me about that stuff, and and uh, I'm, I'm I'm honored. And and yes, I'm I think we're we've come to a close. I'm sick of hearing myself speak. So, so usually, <laughs> an, an indication that we're done. But uh, <laughs> I. Uh, Wish you success with, with your podcast, and uh, uh, I, I did get a chance to listen to a few of them, and I, I heard Peter's uh, interview, which was really great. And um, so, yeah, so thank you for having me, and uh, uh, it was it was it was great to talk to you and yeah. to to, uh, to to learn and to uh, hopefully grow. Yeah, well, man, I I hope we get a chance to to meet in person. Uh, it'd be great. I, I um I've been to Nashville. I have some friends that are there. Um, um, I play I, when she comes out uh, here. Uh, um, we do some playing. Well, sometimes we do some playing. Um, but um, um, uh, anyhow, I I, uh, I I I love Nashville area. I think it's it's an amazing city. And uh, I know Caden has been expressing uh, that he thinks he might be moving there. So. Um, you may you may be seeing him a little bit more than me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing less traveling these days, but um, I, you know it's funny. I it, I had an opportunity to go out to Orange County actually this weekend. I had to turn down for another thing for a Canada run. But I'm not doing as much traveling. But but uh, if I ever do get in that area, um, it'd be great to try and see you play. Oh, give or, me a call. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, but um, but Evan, again, man, thank you so much for taking the time out of your your Monday, and um, absolutely, thank you, and uh, we'll hopefully talk soon. All right, thanks, dude. All right, take we'll care. See you. Bye bye. As you may know, these interviews don't have a strict outline. Uh, they're open for improvisation and just ho- hopefully just an open feel of a conversation. And as you could tell from the get-go, uh, Evan was 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 ready to take it someplace else, and, and I appreciate that. I, 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 it was nice that even though uh, this was the first time that I had a chance to speak with Evan, that he felt comfortable to say, hey, let's talk about 9-11, let's do this, and talk about how it affects uh, music and culture. And, and, and it, was, it was interesting how we kind of brought it full circle with that and that, that was fun I hope you guys found that in, as interesting uh, as I did um, also want to make sure that um, uh, we do a big shout out to Kate and Burns who has been a fan of the podcast and has reached out to me and and sharing some uh, some influential drummers on the west coast that um, that he thought might be important for us to uh, talk to and uh, Evan being one of them. Uh, I've got a couple more interviews coming up with some uh, West Coast drummers that uh, I'm excited to share. So a big, big thanks goes out to Caton Burns for introducing me to Evan Stone, for sure. Uh, my thanks, as always, goes to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albeda's interview. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you can find us on patreon.com slash working drummer where you can help support this podcast and what we do here. So at the very least, please go to patreon.com slash working drummer and see what awards are available to you and to those who are able to help support what Mike and Zach and I do. Also, as a reminder, you can see the t-shirts that we have available. There's graphics on the front and the back, and we have all sizes now, small, medium, large, extra large, and 2XL. 
please uh, consider one of these shirts. Uh, I uh, am excited to have those available. And uh, if you find us on WorkingDrummer.net, you can go to the merch and you can see those shirts. And uh, if you want, please order one. And that all helps uh, support not only the cost of the shirt, but helps us uh, recoup some of the costs of uh, operating the podcast. So uh, please show your support, show your colors, if you will, and, uh, and buy a shirt from WorkingDrummer.net. And uh, thanks again for everyone's listening and participation in this community that uh, we all love and support. And I hope to see you around. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.